0: 2 Kings chapter 14, today we'll begin in verse 21 with a new king. In last week's study, we read that King Amaziah had been murdered by members of his own government. He would have done well to take Ronald Reagan's advice, trust but verify He didn't do, he trusted, but he didn't verify. He stepped away from his responsibility, either assuming it would be handled by others or perhaps thinking his responsibility could just wait until he returned. And it doesn't look like anyone stepped into his role and did a better job. But what they did is have time and have occasion to conspire against him, and it cost him his life. And so from that, one of the things we learned that Amaziah would have done well to learn and practice was to pitch your tent by your own camp and stay there. We learned that when we studied the tribes of the children of Israel back, it's been a few years now. We learned last week you don't pitch your tent somewhere else because when you do, your spot may be taken. Amaziah lost his life and his spot was taken by the next king whose name is Azariah. Now let's look in verse 21, 2 Kings 14. We're thankful for those who came and for those who have joined us on the internet. Verse 21 says, And all the people of Judah took Azariah, which was 16 years old and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. You know, a 16-year-old king may not have needed to take the throne if his father had not abandoned his own responsibilities. And you think of that with the, the boy king, Joash, and then also Josiah in another place, very young kings and Certainly a 16-year-old king, much less a 7-year-old king, would have to have some sort of supervision. I was 16, and I can promise you, although I thought I knew how to be a king, I certainly didn't. On further reflection, and as my my three daughters can quote me on this, that your brain doesn't fully develop till you're 25, so i have reminded them of that often, and when they turned 25, I think they probably realized it as well. But a 16-year-old has no business on the throne, and so we may understand that he's going to have some counselors around him, and the competency of those counselors is important. Do they know what they're doing, and are they going to give him the right advice? And so even though this 16-year-old king was on the throne, and that's not an advantageous situation, it was God's providence. It was God's providence that this young man was made king. Now, I want you to hold your place here and go over to Second Chronicles chapter 26. 2nd Chronicles chapter 26. I'm going to give you a minute to get there. And we're going to see that we'll read a little bit more about Azariah and see that he also had another name. 2nd Chronicles chapter 26. And the way that I studied this here, I think will be a help to you if you, and I hope you like to study your Bible, but if you're looking for little hints about how to better study your Bible, I'm going to show you something that uh, the Bible taught me here, and maybe it'll teach it to you as well. Is everybody there? Second Chronicles 26. Now look with me in verse 1. Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah who was 16 years old and made him king in the room that means in the place of his father Amaziah. So the Bible calls him Uzziah or Uzziah here. He built Elath and restored it to Judah after that the king slept with his fathers. 16 years old was Uzziah when he began to reign, and he reigned fifty and two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Jekeliah of Jerusalem. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah did. And he sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. So we read a, a little bit more about this young king in second chronicles so turn back now to your text in second kings and if you hear me call Azariah Uzziah it's the same young man in fact this king is mentioned by the prophets Isaiah Hosea Amos And some others, but those three in particular All of them prophesied in the days of King Azariah or King Uzziah As he's called in our text, it's Azariah Now, because some of the names in the Bible are very common In fact, the name Zechariah, if you looked it up in the concordance You'd see there are about as many Zecharias as there are smiths in Maybank There's lots of Zecharias. And it can get confusing trying to figure out, well, which one, which Zechariah is this, which John is this, or Mark, or so forth. Well, we want to make sure that when we say this Azariah and Uzziah is the same king who was on the throne when these prophets prophesied, let's look for some Bible proof to that. All right, write down Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. Isaiah 1.1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah, now there's one clue for you, because this is a king of Judah, and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now Hosea, the word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah kings of Judah and in the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash king of Israel and then Amos one one, the words of Amos who was among the herdmen of Tekoa when he which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah king of Judah and in the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash king of Israel two years before the earthquake and we know this is the same Uzziah and not another Uzziah. Because his son, Jotham, and then Jotham's son and grandson, Ahaz, Hezekiah, are mentioned by these prophets in the same succession. In other words, in the same order as in other verses. In 2 Kings, and I'm just skipping ahead a little bit, 2 Kings 15 verse 32. If you want to look at it, you can. It should just be the page over from where you are. 2 Kings 15, 32 says, In the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, began Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, to reign. So there is some evidence that this Uzziah is the same one during whose reign these prophets prophesied. We learn who Uzziah's lineage is, who his son is and his grandson and his great-grandson. Who are they? And those names are all the same in these different verses we've looked at. And then further down in 2 Kings 15 in verse 38, and Jotham slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father, and Ahaz his son reigned in his stead. And then for the proof that Uzziah was the same king as we're reading about in Amos' day, in the prophet Amos' day, then we look back at two verses we've already studied. In the text where we are in 2 Kings 14, if you look back in verse 16, it says, And Jehoash, that's Joash, slept with his fathers, and was buried in Samaria, and with the kings of Israel and Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his stead. So we should have no doubt about two things. And did you notice what we did there? We looked at different passages in the Bible, different verses that tell us the same thing, that tell us that this Uzziah is the same Uzziah as, who, as the one who was on the throne when these prophets prophesied. So we made that claim We've got to be able to support it, and the way we did that is by looking at the mention of Uzziah and his son and his grandson and his great grandson by all these prophets, and then also the mention of Joash and Jeroboam, who was his son. And we were gonna we're gonna probably call him Jeroboam the second, because we'll read a little bit more about him in just a few moments. So we have no doubt about two things: Azariah and our text is the same as Uzziah in 2 Chronicles. And the prophets Amos, Isaiah, and Hosea prophesied during the reign of the king we're studying right now. So Hosea, about whom we are studying in our 11 o'clock hour, was prophesying while this king was on the throne, the one we're studying about today. So perhaps you'll remember some of the things you've learned in the study of Hosea as we go through the rest of our study. Now look back in your text That's 2 Kings chapter 14, and let's read verse 22. And this will sound a lot like what I just read you in 2 Chronicles 26, because it is. He, that's Azariah or Uzziah, built Eloth and restored it to Judah. After that, the king slept with his fathers. So in this chapter, so far... All we're told is that this 52-year reign of, of Azariah, during that reign, he built Eloth and restored it to Judah, and then he died. And we'll learn a little bit more about him later, but because the kings and chronicles, as you know, like the soap opera, they kind of dance back and forth. And it's very easy to get confused about who's on the throne, who's dead, who's about to die. Did he already die here or is he about to die? So just take it one verse at a time. Don't, don't let it confuse you. And the main thing is to learn the spiritual lessons rather than trying to memorize all of the historical facts. Because that can discourage you if you're not able to do it. But Elath was formerly a city that belonged to Edom. Now, you remember who Edom was. That was Esau, right? That was, uh, you had Jacob and Esau, those twin brothers. And Esau was the earthy man. He was the carnal man who despised his birthright and sold it for a bowl of soup. And I've eaten some good soup, but I've never had a bowl that was so good to give up my birthright as the firstborn son in my family. It didn't really mean a whole lot, uh, except I got the new stuff and my brother got the hand-me-downs. But the... uh, The town or the city of Elath was by the Red Sea, which you find back in Deuteronomy chapter 2. And it was one that Solomon had taken, and during that time he was on the throne, he built ships in a place called Ezion-Geber, which is very close to, to Elath. And so what did we see there? Once again, as we've read before, that during his time on the throne, Azariah retook something that Israel had lost, that they never should have lost, but they lost it because of sin. And we're constantly reminded that as we, of that as we see Israel retake and Judah retake and repossess things that had belonged to them before. How much effort, how many lives were lost, how much effort was expended, and how much time was wasted getting back that which was lost to sin when it should have never been lost in the first place. But in order to learn more about Azariah, Uzziah, we have to wait until chapter 15 where we're going to pick him up again. But in the meantime, we study about another king, a king of Israel who was put on the throne, and his name is also Jeroboam. At least they're not two Joash's on the throne at the same time, right? Now we've got a Jeroboam and an Azariah, And we can take a deep breath and and not get too confused about which one is who. And we were introduced to this king, Jeroboam, back in chapter 13. So if you want to look back a page or so, chapter 13 and verse 13, it says, And Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat upon his throne. So when we were introduced to him, then we had a little pause there, Because we had to learn something about Elisha the prophet and what he did with King Joash of Israel and how he put his hand on the bow with him and had him shoot the arrows. You remember the arrow of God's deliverance? So we put Jeroboam on a pause for a moment. And now we're going to learn some more about him. If you look in verse 23, in the 15th year of Amaziah the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned forty and one years. Now, Samaria was the capital city of Israel, which was the northern kingdom, just to review that. This Jeroboam's father was Joash, or Jehoash, not Nebat. So those are the two different Jeroboams. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, was a wicked king. And he was, Nebat was Jeroboam's father. And that Jeroboam was put on the throne after Solomon died. When Solomon's son Rehoboam could have had all of the kingdoms. But he despised his father's counsel. And in Solomon's day, God told Solomon, I'm going to tear the kingdom in half. But I'm not going to do it in your day because of your father David. So God waited until Rehoboam was on the throne, and Rehoboam was a disobedient son. And all those wonderful proverbs that we read about, he read about. And he said no to them. So the kingdom was rent in twain. And Jeroboam sat on the throne of Israel, and Rehoboam sat on the throne of Judah. We have already studied that. But this Jeroboam would reign 41 years over Israel. Now look in verse 24, And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Now I need to make a correction about something I'm afraid I said in the past about this second Jeroboam. I'm afraid I may have called him a good king, and I, my, my memory's failing me on that, but if I did, he's not. So I've, if, I, if you say, well, I thought there was a good Jeroboam. Not necessarily. You're going to see that he's not as wicked as the Jeroboam uh, before, but by no means is this a good king, particularly when the Bible says he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. We cannot classify him as a good king. So if I said that, I was mistaken, and here's the correction, and now we can move on. There are only two Jeroboams mentioned in the Bible. And in fact, in verses 23 and 24, both of them are mentioned. So there's not a third one to draw from. Uh, That means there cannot be a Jeroboam who was a good king, at least one who's mentioned in the Bible. They both did evil in God's sight. And in most cases, when there was an evil king who came sometime after Jeroboam, one of two things was said about that king, if they were evil. They either followed the sins of Jeroboam, or it was also said, for he walked in the way of Jer- in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin. So the king either followed the sins of Jeroboam, or he walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin. And then there was one king about whom it was said... He cleaved to the sins of Jeroboam. But in this case, the text tells us in verse 24, look back at it, he departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam. Now the words from all come they're from one Hebrew word. They're together. And that Hebrew word means everything. So it appears, based on how it's written here, that this Jeroboam, Jeroboam II, departed from most of the sins, or some of the sins, of the first Jeroboam, but not from all of them. Now we're going to learn a lesson about how carnal man sees his own sin. Now, the first thing he does, now we're talking about carnal man, one who is not interested in the perspective of God's word. And many of those people go to church. They've not at least been interested in what the Bible says. They're interested in everything else that happens inside the church, but not that. And, in turn, the preachers of those types of churches usually aren't interested in it either. They may wave it around and hold it up and every once in a while quote something from it or cut a verse in half. But they're not interested in teaching the whole counsel of the Bible. And so a carnal man, when confronted with his sin, will first of all deny it. He'll say, I didn't do anything wrong. Have you heard that before? Well, there's nothing wrong with that. And what he's doing is using his own moral standard to determine whether he's done something wrong. And a moral standard changes just like the direction of the wind in West Texas or in North Texas. It just might come from the south, and after a while, it's out of the east, and you don't know what's next. And that's the way a man, a carnal man's moral standard is. In fact, that's the way man's moral standards are. You know, we had in the in the Texas Penal Code, the state law, and I've been around it a long time, been enforcing it for over three decades. A Texas Penal Code classified homosexual conduct as a Class C misdemeanor. And it was, it was a crime. It didn't say if it happens here or in public. It was just a crime to do it. And a, a search warrant was executed in the Houston area. And this team of police officers who executed the search warrant, it was a narcotic search warrant. Well, they went to the wrong house. And so when they got in that house, they caught two homosexual males doing what they do. And they put him in jail for it because it was against the law. And from that came a series of court decisions and then finally action by the state legislature that completely removed that out of our law. Now, so what happened? The Texas law changed. But God's word didn't change on it. At that time, before that happened, Texas law and God's law were in harmony about homosexual conduct. God said it's an abomination, so did the state of Texas. But then the state of Texas decided, well, we know better than God. We're going to change this and make that's that's that man's business or this person's business. And boy, it just took off from there. It not only came out of the closet, it just broke the walls down. And now it's, uh, I read this morning that uh, one of the professional hockey teams They're supposed to wear these woke jerseys, these uh, LGBTQT alphabet-affirming jerseys during their warm-ups. Well, their goalie said, I'm not doing it, and I'm not going to warm up with them. And of course, you know what he is. He is the public enemy number one of the liberals. Why is that? Because the moral standards of man change. And when you look at this case of Jeroboam, the second Jeroboam, where he... Didn't do everything evil that the first Jeroboam did, it sets up the case for him to say the second thing. He's not denying his sin. He wouldn't be denying his sin. He would say, it's not as bad as what someone else did, and that's called minimizing it. So after the denial comes the minimizing. If a person says, well, okay, Okay, I can see that it might not be exactly right what I did, but it's not as bad as what he did or she did. And that's called minimizing. At least I haven't murdered anyone if I'm a thief. Well, I was. yes, I was stealing, but I wasn't stealing for greed. I was stealing to put food on the table. And that's how people minimize their sin. God's Word says, thou shalt not steal. I mean, it's one of the shorter verses in the Bible, isn't it? Thou shalt not steal. Four words. And it doesn't give exceptions in there. It's so Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 21. And you've seen this verse before, but what I want you to do is I want you to listen for what this man does, how he speaks, how he rationalizes his own works, his own actions, when Jesus confronts him. Matthew nineteen sixteen through 21, And behold, one came and said unto him, that is, unto Jesus, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God, but if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He, that's the rich man, saith unto him, I said the rich man, he is rich. He saith unto him, which? In other words, which one of these would you like me to keep? Jesus said, thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, all these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? In other words, Jesus, I've done all of these things that you just mentioned. What is it that I haven't done? What is it that I need to do? That one more thing, Jesus said, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. That's why I said he was a rich man. He had great possessions. See how his perspective changed there? And I'll tell you, first of all, he was lying to Jesus whenever he said he'd kept all those other things. Because what did Jesus say about adultery? He said if a man looks on a woman to lust after in his own heart, he's committed adultery with her already. So even if he's never laid a a finger on her, He's lusted after her, and she's married or he's married. Then there's an adulterer. He, what did he say about murder? Yeah, you hate your brother without a cause. That's the same as killing him. It's it's right here in the heart. So this self righteous man supposed within himself that his imperfect righteousness would make Jesus accept him as righteous. He claimed to have kept all the commandments that Jesus named off at the beginning, but we know he didn't. And he must have reasoned within himself, you know, I, I'm at the front of the line for, right, for eternal life. I'm, I must be at the front of the line, and all these people behind me have done far worse than me, which makes me righteous. That's this man's line of thinking. But the standard by which God judges us is not our standard. He doesn't say, well, hold on a minute, Andy, you from the state of Texas, right? Let me get the Texas penal code out. Did you ever steal? Did you ever kill anybody? Did you ever commit this offense and go through all those crimes that are in the Texas penal code? And if I say, no, I never did any of those, which would be a big old lie. But if I say, I never did any of those, then... You never sped either, right? No, I never sped. See, I'd be lying to him. But if I was able to... Let's say I was able to tell the Lord I have never done anything that's against the law in the state of Texas. I can still die and go to hell, right? Because that's not the standard by which God judges me is what's in the Texas law, in the transportation code, or in the health and safety code, or any of those others. It's his word. And so this self-righteous man... Although he claimed to have kept all of those sayings, all of those laws that Jesus named off, failed to realize that he was not even judging himself truthfully by God's standard. He would say, Lord, like that publican, he doesn't even lift up his eyes toward heaven. Have mercy on me, a sinner. He'd have named himself a sinner right off the bat. You know, there was a friend of mine who was in the fence-building business. And while he was building a fence for a man, this man began witnessing to him. And this is from my friend now, so I get it from that perspective. And during that conversation, as this man tried to witness to my friend, who I believe is lost, my friend said, well, I've never done anything bad enough to go to hell for. Yeah. Same thing Donald Trump said one time. So I pray for that man. I want him to be a Christian too. And my friend understood the question. But he misunderstood the standard by which he would be judged. He said, I've never done anything bad enough. Well, that leaves room for a lot of interpretation, doesn't it? He said essentially the same thing as this rich young man to whom Jesus was speaking in Matthew. He had the same humanistic perspective about sin as Jeroboam II and most people who've ever lived, in fact. Listen to James chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. But if ye have respect to persons... You commit sin. Now, that doesn't mean if you respect people like we think of it, it's a sin. It's not. It's a wonderful thing. Having respect to persons means showing favoritism to people because of who they are. Oh, you're the president of the bank here. Well, yeah, you, yeah, you come on in. You don't need to pay. Oh, but old Doug, you work down here at this, this uh, factory. Yeah, you've got to pay full price. That's called showing respect to persons. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point. Now the rich young man would have done well to know this. Jeroboam II would have done well to know this. My friend would do well to know this. Yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said do not commit adultery also said do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. And so you take the Ten Commandments, and if somebody says... I have kept seven of them, and other people have not kept any of them, or this person has only kept four of them, therefore I am more righteous. That's the same humanistic perspective that Jeroboam would have had, that the young ruler would have had, or did have, in his conversation with Jesus. And then I'm going to give you another scripture, because I think it's important that we learn this, either for yourself, or somebody you're witnessing to who thinks that they're good enough to go to heaven, these are some scriptures you can give them. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 12, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. So what are you if you're comparing yourself to someone else when it comes to righteousness. You're not wise. You're a fool. Imagine that if I were to be asked by God in this hypothetical situation, why should I let you into my heaven? And I say, well, because I haven't sinned as much as old uh, brother Ronnie over here. Oh, okay. Well, well, come on in. God's not going to do that. I'm going to come in that one way. And that is through the blood of his son. He's not going to have to interview me about it either because my faith is in Christ. And if there was an interview, he would interview Christ. And he doesn't have to interview Christ. He let him die on the cross. He sent him to die on the cross for our sins. It's an accomplished act. And I took advantage of it by faith. So no matter how much more wicked the first Jeroboam was than the second Jeroboam, Both were wicked in God's sight. He said they were both evil. And if you're not a Christian, you're no more or no less wicked than the two Jeroboam's in God's sight. And if you're a Christian, God doesn't measure you against other sinners in the first place. He sees you in the righteousness of Jesus. That's the only one you're measured with. And if you're in Him, then you're righteous. It's a whole different standard and it's one that can only be attained. We can only attain to that standard by grace through faith, not through human effort. And everything else is through human effort. Well, the kings are teaching us about the gospel, aren't they? Verse twenty-five, Second Kings 14, verse 25, continuing to speak of this second Jeroboam. He restored, there's our word again, he restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain according to the word of the Lord God of Israel which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah the son of Amittai the prophet which was of gath hepher He restored which signifies that this place Hamath was already theirs and had been lost and now it's been taken back again. God gave it to them and they sinned and they lost it. And God returned it to them. And in this case, it's solely by His grace. You know, sin causes an awful lot of problems, doesn't it? Big ones, big problems, and small problems. There are some problems you have, and they're, they're little problems. They're kind of irritating and annoying that sin probably caused. Hamath is mentioned in Joshua chapter 13, verse 5 as a place that God wanted to give to the children of Israel. And Jonah, in this text, is the same prophet who wrote the book of Jonah. Boy, what an interesting time to be alive in history when those prophets were alive and speaking and writing. You say, well, how do you know that's the same prophet as the book of Jonah? There could be many Jonas. You're exactly right. But Jonah 1.1 one. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, and then it continues. And that's what the text tells us in verse 25. Jonah the son of Amittai the prophet, which was of Gath-Hefer, and I believe that's Galilee. However, the prophecy that's referenced right here in verse 25, it says that this was according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by the hand of Jonah. In other words, there was a prophecy that Jonah gave that said that God would restore this particular bit of land to Judah. And if you go back in the book of Jonah, you won't see that prophecy there. So what does that mean? That means Jonah, still means Jonah said it because right here the Bible says that Jonah said it. That's all we need. We don't have to go find the written prophecy wherever that may be and go, oh, okay, Ooh, I was beginning to believe that God... God's word wasn't true. No. If God said that Jonah had prophesied this, then he did. That's what we need to know. We don't have to say, well, we're going to have to look for the the scrolls and see if we can find them in a fruit jar somewhere and over in. No, we don't. If you do that, if you have to do that, then when will you ever believe God's word? Has it not proven itself consistent and harmonious enough to you? That you need one more thing to say, okay, well that that'll seal the deal for me if, if I could just see that. That's not faith. You know, it's kind of like Solomon's Proverbs. You remember perhaps that he wrote thousands of Proverbs and songs, and we don't have them all in the Bible, but we know he wrote them. We have some of them, but we know he wrote them because why? God's Word said he did. That's all I need. I don't have to see them. We either trust God's word that they've been written or we don't. You know, it's amazing to me that the same people who believe what they read on social media, who use Instagram and TikTok and Pinterest and Facebook and all these other mediums to learn truth, what they believe is truth. They believe what happens on there, what somebody says on there. It's amazing that most of those people won't believe what's written in the Bible. They'll say, well, it's written by man. Yeah, sure is. So is social media. But there's a crucial difference. The 40 men who wrote the Bible were under divine inspiration, and their words harmonize over a 1,500-year period they wrote, although the Bible covers more time than that. Moses wasn't alive during the times he wrote about in the Garden of Eden and when Abraham was alive and Jacob was alive and so forth. So from Moses until the last author... Of the Bible, that was about a 1,500-year period. So we don't have to see every single word or hear every single word that God ever spoke to man. We have what he wants us to have right here in the Bible by his divine revelation, and it's enough. If somebody says, well, we're going to have to have, the, we're going to have, to have every writing that was ever written by any man of God, well, you're not going to get that. Look at verse 26 with me. Now this word for means because, and it tells you why God did what we read about in verse 25. Why did he restore this land? For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter. For there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. Now I'm going to give you another, what another translation says that may make that a little more plain for you. So if you're KJV only, just plug your ears and stay confused for a minute, but everybody else can listen to the way the NKJV puts this. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. That means there was no helper for the slave, there was no helper for the free man, there was no helper for Israel. So God didn't give them back the land. Unplug your ears, KJV folks. KJV-only folks, excuse me. God didn't give Israel or Judah back this land because they were more righteous. He didn't give them the land back because they had obeyed him or walked according to his statutes and commandments. He gave gave it back to him because he saw their affliction. He had mercy on them. He He showed his grace. They were, they were at their worst. It said their affliction was bitter. You know, that means that grace is something that we ought to learn about God. We need to learn about his holiness, about his justice, his judgments. But, boy, we need to learn about his grace. Because that's what brought any of you who are saved to the cross is his grace. You didn't say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blaze a trail of the cross. You you can't. You don't deserve to blaze a trail of the cross, and neither did I. God called us there by faith. And that's the same kind of grace he showed Israel right here. They were helpless, so he helped them. He didn't help them because they were walking according to his word because they weren't. Or because of their fabulous king, because they didn't have a fabulous king, they had an evil king for 41 years. He was on the throne. So, why did he help them? He said it. It's because of his promise to them the one that he told Jonah and that Jonah prophesied about. The same grace that he showed them when he called them his people. When he led them out of Egypt, through the wilderness, and into the land of promise. You know, God's grace has never been more evident to me than when he showed it to me, and I was at my worst. That's when I looked heavenward and said, I know that's grace. Because there's not anything I've done in obedience or faith that, were, that merited that. That was grace. And then that makes me appreciate it every time I experience it again or see it in the lives of others or read about it in the Bible. I say, boy, God, you, you, you really could have just zapped old Israel right there or Judah or both of them. But you didn't do it because of your grace. In Genesis, well, let's, let's uh, finish this verse here. He said, by the hand of Jeroboam, look in verse 27 with me. And the Lord said that he would, excuse me, and the Lord said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. How about that? By the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. That means God used this evil king to save Israel. What? I thought Jeroboam was an evil king. That's right, he was. And God is not pleased at all with evil. But evil has never stopped God from executing his sovereign will. Thank God for that. God didn't say, well, I would save Israel, but I can't because their king is evil. He didn't say, oh, I hope a good king comes along so I can save Israel. God is not bound by anything except his own will his own word. And he has and he will use the evil that men do to accomplish his will, not to defeat it. And we'll learn more about that next week because our time is up. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the good attention given by the people who have attended and who've watched online. And now, Lord, we Pray that you would take the truth from your word, imprint it into our hearts, so that it will shape the way we think, the way we talk, the way we act and walk in this world. And Lord, be with our pastor, with our congregation during this next hour, that our eyes would be upon you and our ears would be open unto your word, and that our praise would be acceptable in your ears like a sweet-smelling savor unto the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.